Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. Carmen Acevedo Butcher, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. We're so delighted to have you here and welcome you to this conversation. I think that there's a lot of things we can talk about and it's going to be a juicy chat. Carmen Acevedo Butcher is a clean speaker, an author, an editor, a poet, and a translator of spiritual text. She is the award-winning translator of classic such as The Practice of Presence, published by Broadleaf by Brother Lawrence, which is probably going to be the heart of our conversation today. So, Carmen, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you so much, Julia. It's a real delight to be here. I love your podcast and everything. And it's so much fun to talk to you. I can't wait to hear your wisdom and to hear what you can share with us about Brother Lawrence. I know that you're a scholar at Berkeley and you were raised in the Southern Baptist tradition. What's your religious and spiritual identity? I really love that, you know, how you talk about this is radical gospel living and you're, you talk, you get into the mess. I like that you've gotten into the mess immediately (laughs) (laughs) because I thought you might ask this. And I think we do need to start since radical means root. I do want to start with the Southern Baptist roots. I was raised although I also often think of it as being lowered in many ways, it's complex, right? One of the things from my Southern Baptist roots is that I learned about really Lexio Divina, although it wasn't called that. So my mother had this thing where she had me memorize the books of the Bible and I got paid in quarters. That was really useful. And then <laughs> I loved quarters and then, and we had sword drills. And then we for like vacation Bible school sword drills where like you have a contest of who can open the Bible quickest to say first Kings, you know, a book that's hard to find. That's a sword drill. I was pretty good at it. You know, who knows where Chronicles is, but I did at one point, you know, could turn right to it. But for like vacation Bible school, we memorize things like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A lot of verses. And the hymns really spoke to me. What a friend I have in Jesus. I can still hear a hymn these days and get teary-eyed like or, or sing it to myself. And, and yet at the same time, mostly my position in that church was I could work in the nursery. I didn't feel as if I was seen as a full human because I was a woman. Though I've come to see the good in it. Do you know what I'm saying? I've come to see the good in it because it really gave me a respect for the Bible. But one of the difficulties I've had in my life, like most people have difficulties, is um, depression and also severe anxiety. And when I was in graduate school, because I had some childhood trauma, when I was in graduate school, I slept maybe two hours a night. I started identifying with Ernest Hemingway. That's not really something that you want because he didn't sleep much at all either. And so one of the things I started doing was I thought to myself, what is the Bible really about? So in addition to trying to stay in graduate school by making all A's, because they really wanted you to make A's to stay in the program anywhere. But this was at University of Georgia and I had great teachers. But I started getting commentaries and reading the Bible through myself, like 
all the way through three times in graduate school. So much so I thought I was going to maybe flunk out because I was spending as much time studying the Bible on my own with commentaries that actually took me into the language. So like the poetry of Job with commentaries that illuminated this word means this, like learning about Rahim in the Old Testament for mercy, that means womb. And so lots of different bells went off in my head. And I started because I was suffering from chronic depression since I was 16 on and dyslexia undiagnosed. I started carrying around Bible verses in my back pocket so much so that sometimes they would start getting holes in the three by five or four by six cards. And I would go on. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be like Christopher Smart, the great English poet. I didn't want to be genuflecting and stuff in public where people were like, there's that weird girl in the English department, you know? (laughs) It's not that I didn't think I was weird. I just didn't want everybody to know about it. (laughs) And so so I'm carrying these verses around and I would walk for two hours a day because that helped me to tamp down what I was learning, be able to take more in. And also it helped me to manage my depression. I didn't know it, but that was what I was instinctively moving towards. So I would take out these Bible verses because who notices people when they're walking and I would meditate on them. Come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And I would live into these verses. I would diagram them. I'm a nerd. <laughs> and I, I'm a card-carrying nerd. Right? like it, literally. <laughs> I mean, yes. And what I, what I realized then, I, all of a sudden, I ran into, in an anthology, in a nondescript class, I can't even remember which class it was at UGA, but it wasn't a class on the mystics, but I ran into these weird women. And they were weird, meaning from the old English word that means different, not weird, bad. I think weird's a good word. Don't we all want to be weird, you know, in a good way? And they talked about God as lover, God as friend, and God as mother. And all of a sudden, and they talked about blood. They talked about real like things. They talked about even like depression. They did, even if they didn't talk about it, like Hildegard had trouble getting out of bed sometime. I didn't even remember who they were because the depression is an odd thing. I also ran into the cloud of unknowing them, but I didn't even remember it was called the cloud. I just remember there was this great book about prayer. So then years later, when I was teaching at a shorter college in Rome, Georgia, it was a small liberal arts school. I felt a pull to translate the cloud. I can't explain it. I mean, I really, I didn't, I never had a whole long list of, I'm going to do this in my life. I'm going to do this. And so I found, so if I identify as anything, you know, Simone Bay, she always said when she was writing the father, who was her friend, he was like, I want you to come into the church. I want you to come, you know, and she did have these intense experiences that were associated with Catholicism. Right. But she said, as long as there were people outside the church, she felt she should stay outside there with them. And I teach really diverse students and I see how much they are wanting to have a world that's interconnected and accepting of others, not tolerant of others, accepting of others. So something beyond tolerating, right? Something cheerful and kind. And so I, if I don't really, you know, not to be very respectful about it, but I'm not really comfortable with having a quote identity, you know, like I, like I have an identity. I know that people, that's how we talk about things. 
But I think if I had to have one, it would be as a contemplative who began in the Christian faith, who has great respect for Christianity, radical Christianity. Mm -hmm. So Christianity at its roots is contemplative and serving others and for social justice, the orphans and the widows and those in prison, right? So Christianity as it began, I am a hundred percent for. And Jesus said, give to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what's God's. And Jesus elevated women. And so I'm definitely for that. But one of the things I discovered was that all of a sudden, for my own healing, I was reading Buddhist and Hindu. I gave myself permission somewhere along the way to accept wisdom and love wherever it was. And I found it in so many places and it fed my soul. It wasn't so much intellectual, it was heart need. And so the wisdom of Pema Chodron, but so many others, so many others in that tradition of Buddhism has really helped to heal my soul. And I found friends everywhere who, as you talk it, could we make a verb out of this? Messify things? (laughs) Instead of complexify, but can we say, I have friends everywhere who messify things simply by, Mm -hmm. so I have a friend who was raised Catholic, has become a Lama in the Buddhist tradition, but eventually came back, she says, to, she missed Jesus. So don't we want these voices to share, right? I think like you talk about interfaith dialogue and my friend Mirabai Starr talks about interspirituality. And I think for world survival and peace, we really need to inhabit these liminal spaces. So if I had to have an identity, I would definitely say I want to be, as Brother Lawrence says, a wise lover of God. And I want to be respectful of others and to serve others and bring the margins, help bring the margins into the table. I hope that answers it. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yeah. And I think what you're describing is so beautiful and profound because it's really describing the messiness of spirituality and being on a spiritual path. And as we embrace the messiness, then there's not these rigid boundaries and borders. And it allows for this communal conversation that's that can we can be informed and enriched by those that are different than us and in some ways we can develop an interspiritual identity where we're combining and mixing and, and it's it's not to negate the truth because god jesus is still the truth the way the light i guess i tend to be as a believer in what desmond tutu said that god is not a christian <laughs> Right, like, yeah. like God is bigger than this Christian religion uh, that is part of human history on planet Earth, and for us to be so narrow, <laughs> I love that in our in our definitions. Yeah, I didn't know he said. I actually did not know. I read a lot of his works, but I did not know he said that. And what I love about it is it kind of negates that tendency we humans have to make religions into football teams. Right. Do you know, like where we're competing on the field and I have the better quarterback and we won the game. And I love that, that I never have heard that. I love it though. Yeah. Well, even if you're only having a a focus of the Abrahamic traditions, right? And Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all worshiping the same God. And so right there is the 
like the verification of that truth of Tutu, that that God is not a Christian, but God is broader than the religions that we've created as humans. So yeah, let's keep open hearts and open minds and allow the spirit to show us the way, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that and for being so authentic. I'm curious though, because here you are now a professor, a teacher, a scholar, and a, a translator of spiritual works. So how did you discover that you had a vocation of translating spiritual texts? That is such a good question. Wow. How did I know I have? I didn't. Okay, so like I didn't know. I didn't have, I wasn't voted in high school most likely to become a translator. (laughs) I think what happened was I didn't know it, but I have always practiced the presence Mm -hmm. and it has convinced me and kept me humbled by the fact that prayer is a gift. Primarily prayer is a gift. Yes, we can try to sharpen our intentions or be more intentional. But when I was a child, I practiced the presence and it's the prayer that prayed itself in me. I cannot explain that, but it was like God watching out for me in the middle of some real difficulties and existential threats, in fact. And what I can say is that over time, I developed this habit which I didn't realize I did until I started translating Brother Lawrence. So you'll see, I don't have an overarching plan, but Brother Lawrence helped me to see the gold in my shadow. But I started doing things like, I remember walking into class in 2002 or something like that, when I went back to teaching after being a stay-at-home mom for a while and saying, whoo, please help me, because I was always stressed out. And I felt almost like I was like walking into the lion's den, like here all these, I could see the students in this basement classroom and I could see through the windows as I'm walking past on the outside and I saw them all sitting there and I thought they're going to eat me a lot. (laughs) And so I had by that time made a habit of just like, please help me. In college, one of my friends had a poster on her wall that says help is the best prayer. And I remember arguing with this friend, that's dumb. I mean, (laughs) I didn't come into this like I knew what I was doing. I was like, we really need to have formulate our prayers and we need to and she was like well I kind of like help sometimes and so I would see that poster in her dorm room all the time and I was intellectual and I was arguing well that's just and then it came to be that I started living that prayer right like help just walking into that classroom like please help me like I don't even know what to pray for but I'm scared please help me and then you know you prepare but then things come up and you take them a different way when you've had that prayer. So the only way I can say that I wound up translating texts was I was in graduate school. This is another, what do you call it, piece of evidence for my nerd card. And I was studying with John Aljo. And the reason I asked John Aljo, could he be my major professor was he was the best. And I knew that he could challenge me. I had plenty of other best teachers, great teachers, but he loved language in a way that I knew I didn't understand. He kept like almost like like a mad hatter from Alice in Wonderland. He kept disappearing around the corner. Like he would do things and say things. And I was like, what? I just, I didn't understand him at all. And he knew what he was doing. He was in another world. 
And I was like, I want some of that. You never can become your teacher, but I wanted some of that. So I was humbled by his understanding of all languages. And I asked him to be my major professor. And then here's how it started by chance. I was supposed to do a master's degree and I had no clue what to do. And in fact, I had enough hours to become an American lit PhD or master's degree student. But then I just decided I really missed old English and I'll go back to like middle English and old English. I just missed the language. I just missed language. Language is my thing. And so I stopped thinking I'll do a master's degree in American lit, which would have been maybe somebody like Whitman or Emily Dickinson. And I went into Middle English and Old English. And I was in a professor's office one day, not even John Aljo's. And he goes, so what you doing your master's degree on? I was like, um, I'm thinking, because you know, in graduate school, you don't admit, you don't know. I'm thinking about, and I just, blah, 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 something. And he goes, I said, but I'm not really sure because you want to be humble about it. When you actually wanted to say, I got no clue, that would be, have been better. But he said, well, have you thought about this and this? He was very generous. And then he walked over to his bookshelf. He reached up to the highest shelf where the books are you never look at. (laughs) And he pulled off this book. He said, there might be Alfred of Innisham. And I was like, who? Yeah. And and he was like, the old, I'd never heard of him. But it turns out he's the Benedictine monk from the 10th century. And all of a sudden, I started reading about him and I fell in love with his prose, with his old English prose. It was all about God's mercy, which my childhood was a lot of sermons on hellfire and damnation. And I was taught as a child that there's a policeman in my soul watching out for when I do wrong. And the worst part of it is that policeman's rules changed a lot. So you never quite knew what was going to be wrong today, but there was a chance it you were going to do something wrong. So when I discovered Alfred of Innisham and his God of mercy and his prose that was merciful, his prose style matched his message. And then I found his sermons on John. And you know how John is what, if somebody's going to preach their most mature sermons, it's going to be on John. Because John is really, as you said it at the beginning, you have that wonderful adjective, juicy. John is juicy, right? <laughs> and so. I started looking into translating some sermons of Alfred that had never been translated. I don't even remember why. I just know that I wasn't good at coming up with a new theory for Moby Dick or a new theory for Alfred or a new theory. I was really much better with down to earth things. I just needed, I needed for healing the contact with healing language. So that's actually, I think, why I started into translation. It was more like a meal that I needed for my soul. And I was just fortunate enough to be in graduate school. And I was teaching. I was a TA. And so I lived on a shoestring. I mean, I ate like tuna almost every night out of the can. I don't mean like ahi tuna. I mean like, you know, tuna. And so that's how it started. And then when I began teaching in Rome, I just felt a pull to translate the cloud of unknowing and that helped me to deal with the shadow in my soul. And I know when you were talking with Padre Gotua, he was talking about how God is dark and light and how we have this kind of artificial schema that we put on dark and light. 
And we forget that dark is good and light is good. I mean, that there are these complex aspects to them. And I started really by translating the cloud of unknowing. When you read the cloud in Middle English, it is contemplation. He's made it mimetic. So you can't read it in Middle English and not contemplate. So translating it is like that on steroids. And I also started going to counseling right afterwards. And that was really hard and very helpful. So I'm very grateful for translation because you don't write a book and you don't translate. You don't go into it going, I'm going to contribute this to the world. No, you don't. You go into it with, this feeds my soul, and please help me know how to do this. And then only afterwards, looking back, do you go, wow, this was really healing. Although at the time, I did know something big was happening, because Father Thomas Keating talks about how when you do centering prayer, which is based on the cloud, as you know, that you stir up the unconscious. And that you might want to see a spiritual director, a spiritual companion, or a therapist or psychologist. And I can definitely say that period, I knew something was happening. And I knew that I needed some help because it was like every so often I would just have a breakdown. And as one counselor told me once, I was a high-functioning depressive. And fortunately, I'm not depressed now. I've found different ways, different ways of healing and different medicines of approach to life and such. But I'm really thankful for the chance to have entered into these spaces with these wise teachers because they really know things that we forget and they can really help us, I think, heal ourselves and our world. So I I really appreciate you asking me that question because every time I try to answer a question similar to this, I realize things because one of the things I know is a fact for me that was true with depression is that it created in me a blindness. Like I would even forget the books I wrote. Mm-hmm. Like I would, like whenever I would have to do things, you know how you have put things down for becoming assistant, associate, professor, like you have to put down your things you've done. And when I would ever have to compile different resumes and stuff, I'd be, oh yeah, the Hildegard book. Like I would forget <laughs> uh, things like that. And that's not exactly healthy, Julia, for the sense of like being, you know how Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I think you can make efforts to love your neighbor, even if you have self-loathing. But I really think it would be much kinder to really realize more self-compassion. And that's what translating did for me. It helped me to, it really helped me to have self-compassion. See that I was just part of, and that's where the Buddhists have helped me. My Buddhist friends and Buddhist writers and teachers that I'm part of the human family and that there is suffering. Nobody escapes it. No. Right? Right. And I'm not special in that way. <laughs> part of the human condition. <laughs> just part of yeah. And so I appreciate your asking me that. Uh, you know, and I think part of, there, there's so much in what you're sharing here that I think I just want to uplift and underline for us to ponder. You're naming how in your story of coming home to translation, was really a story of integration. It was an experience of, well, I need healing and the words are healing for me. And this is soul food for me. And, and you, you named that it's the ordinary things or it's what helps you to feel alive. 
And then this journey of suffering is real. I must have mercy and compassion for myself, right? And ultimately, this helps you to become more true to who you are and not be something you're not. So isn't that beautiful? And it uh, certainly connects beautifully to Brother Lawrence and his story. And so I'd love it if you could just tell us about who Brother Lawrence is and why his message matters today. Wow, that is a segue of A-plus proportions. That is just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was, I watched you on school, but that is absolutely beautiful. And yes, I could talk about Brother Lawrence until the cows come home, because if the cloud helped me to encounter in a gentle way, the shadow, the Brother Lawrence helped me to really see the gold in my shadow. Mm-hmm. And he was, he feels, it's so weird to say that he lived in the 17th century because he feels so alive today for me. But if Brother Lawrence were alive today, he'd be 330-something years old. <laughs> no, even old. But anyway, but he was born in 1614. Sometimes you'll see 1611, but I did some research on that, and it was 1614. And he died in 1691. So he was about 77, because we don't know the months, right? But that was a pretty long time to live back then, right? These days, we take that as, that's not as, Uh, eyebrow raising, but that was a pretty big deal. And he was born in Lorraine. So he wasn't even born in France. He was born in a territory that's in the Northeast where we get like quiche Lorraine, if people think about it. And he was born in a tiny village. And to put it in the parlance of the day, he was born as a quote unquote, nobody. I'm not saying that, but that was the reality for him. And we only, yeah, most people in those days. That's exactly where where we're headed because 98, about 98% of people in that day were in the third estate. They weren't noblemen and noble women. They weren't high ranking clergy. They were of the third estate. And this was a system that the church was sadly complicit in, often in saying this is divinely ordained, when actually it was man-made. And like most, like, you know, (laughs) you know, all the things that we're all complicit in. And he was born into the third estate. So that meant that he did not have a chance to have an education. I mean, there just wasn't even a chance for it. So his first education would have come in his spiritual formation classes later on when he uh, joined, entered the monastery. But he, yeah, the Carmelite, the discalced Carmelite, the shoeless, the sandal wearing discalced Carmelites, the, um, those who are the ancestors of Teresa of Avila and Juan de la Cruz, John of the Cross. But he did not start life that way. And what I love about his story is I really relate to it. And I think many people do because He entered the military when he was around 18 or so. That would have given like a schedule for his day. It would have given him some sort of stipend. It would have given him something to do. And since he was a Lorrainer, it would have given him something to fight for. I mean, I could see him at 18 thinking I'm supporting my territory by joining the military. But he was joining the 30 Years War. And one of the things you do as a translator is you read the best history books like Jeffrey Parker's book on this period. And there's no war that is not a cruel, 
But the Thirty Years' War, lots of scholars talk about how it was the, quote, first modern war. And what happened was it started with Catholics and Protestants, and then it spilled over into land grabs. And then it became lots of professionally hired marauders roaming through Central Europe in everyone's backyard. And so civilians were a large part of the casualties and millions, one person millions of times died and their families. So it was, but the worst part of it is when you read and you see some of the art, and I say that in quotes this time, some of the art commemorating that war from that period shows the heinousness of it. Really, if anybody wants to look into it, you just Google it or look into the my book. I've got some notes about it. And so he was also a prisoner of war in this war, Brother Lawrence. He was then called Nicola Hermann. So he would have been known maybe to his friends as Nick, or we would say Nicholas Herman. I often think of him as Nick. But anyway, he was a prisoner of war. He was questioned as a spy. But he was really brave. That's one of the things Joseph of Beaufort, a priest friend who was about 20 years younger than him, said he was really brave in the war. But the thing is, we don't know what he may have seen, what he may have done. And I wouldn't want to speculate, but I do know looking at the language that Brother Lawrence and Joseph use around his war years, that he experienced horror. That's the word, horror. It's horror. And he talks about the sins or the harm he caused, how he puts it, the harm he caused in his youth. So I don't know what it was, but he reminds me of the desert fathers and mothers who often went to the desert, yes, to escape civilization and all of its materialism or its politics or whatever, but also because they felt that they had caused harm. And so I love Brother Lawrence for his realness, his vulnerability. But one of the things that happened during the war was that he was wounded in his leg. So from his early 20s on for over five decades, he limped in pain every day. And that's something I think we need to sit with. And I think as long COVID is a reality, I know my husband has dealt with long COVID. I think that as we have to re-enter the space of what does disability mean and who is not disabled, then how can we help each other? How can we be more real, more present, more loving, kinder? Brother Lawrence lived with a disability. He was a disabled war veteran. It wasn't even a day when you had Advil. Think, I really have thought about this. And he was, so he tried to be, I shouldn't get to the monastery yet, but he failed in his 20s multiple times. He says this, he says he was a clumsy oaf when he was a footman or a valet for a nobleman in Paris. And he was, for a while, he tried to be a hermit, but he was just too, if I may say this very gently, he wasn't ready for it yet. And he needed more support of community at that time. And so then he had an uncle who was a discalced Carmelite, lay brother. And eventually, after much toing and froing in his soul and failures, he decided to enter the monastery in Paris. And We should back up a bit and say when he was 18, he did have a mystical experience. We treat these things as if they're so unique. I wish we could bring back the notion that if you've ever looked at a sunset and felt this odd stirring of your heart, you're a mystic. Yes. (laughs) Can we just say, can we just say? And I've heard my friend, Reverend Seifu, talk about how mysticism is a Western term 
And it kind of makes it sound elite when aren't all of our souls made in the image of God and then wouldn't feeling awe make us all mystics. But we could, that's a conversation for another day. But he was looking at a tree that was bare of its leaves during the winter. And all of a sudden his heart was filled with this certainty that the leaves would return and then the flowers and then the blooms. And he knew God loved him. That was it. Mm-hmm. But in spite of that feeling, he's, and we hear throughout the book, that feeling never left him. And in spite of that, <laughs> he had the first 10 years in the monastery, a dark night of the soul. So he began praying the presence prayer. In other words, just returning to love. He practiced it even when he had no visible results. I love this about him because I think we have, I don't want to speak for others, but as I talk with others and people share with me, I get a sense that I haven't really met too many people who have not experienced a dark night of the soul or dark nights of the soul. And he had 10 years where he sort of created for his own healing, this returning to love. And he eventually started realizing, oh, I'm doing something slightly different from Teresa slightly. You know, he's sort of taking the mental prayer and turning it into this sort of wordless prayer of just returning to love. And so what I love about him is that his path to prayer and faith and love is through trauma and disability and through marginalization, because he really is the person at the margins of society. I think we've romanticized him. I know even I had, you know, he's the, he was assigned to the kitchen. And so he, but he said he really had an aversion to that. So the word is aversion in French. So that means turning away from, right? So in other words, he hated it. (laughs) He didn't like, he didn't like making omelets at first. He didn't like making soup. And he's not cooking for two or three brothers. He's cooking for a hundred. That's a so when I that's a lot, right? That's just think of just cooking. That's a real thing. So so and and then add to it the fact that I can't help but see two things about him. He's limping in the kitchen, and kitchen work is woman's work. I mean, it's not the most manly. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's yeah. Back in the day, especially. So. He learned, it sort of reminds me of Teresa of Lisieux. He learned to do the smallest things. He even says this, it doesn't matter the smallness of your thing, whatever you're doing, it matters that you do it with great love. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all my favorite people say something like that, right? Mother Teresa says it too. But he learned to do the smallest things in the kitchen while limping, I'd like to add, and in pain. For decades, he was in the kitchen and he did it for love of his brothers. And people remarked on this. People noticed it. They noticed that he stirred the soup with love. And the other thing they noticed, and this to me is where his presence practice proves that the proof is in the pudding. Everybody said about him, he could be doing two or three things at once. And you know how in the kitchen, there's always, if you're doing it right, there's several things have to have your attention at once. You have to multitask. And they said, no matter who was talking with him, no matter how many things were going on, he was always calm. And so this was the thing. I am not naturally a calm person. I have a Cuban background. I had, I grew up going to Miami and all my aunts there would just say, while we were, I loved them. They would say, mira, mira. They're always like, we're like not calm people. You know what I'm saying? My family. And when I would be translating him the first summer of the pandemic, 
I so looked forward, like I was getting up at 4.30 or so and I would go in there and it was like entering into a cathedral or a woods, like a, a pine tree forest. It was so calm. His calmness is juicy or palpable. And so it like invites us into it. And it's almost as if his calmness is communicated through practice of the presence, the book. And so just by entering into it, we get a sense of what we could have, like we can catch his calmness, if that makes sense. It does. There's so much here that I wish we could explore. We, I wish we had all day, <laughs> but we don't. So let me just say that one of the nuggets I want to go back to here that I think is important is how mysticism is ordinary. And in his story, we're hearing how love and fidelity is not a transactional thing. Like you don't keep showing up and loving God and loving neighbor and doing what you're called to do because you believe you're going to get something out of it. You do it because there's a devotion and a commitment, right? And I find that to be what real faith is and what ultimately is a spiritual practice in itself. It's a, path, a spiritual path. It, and it's probably why he was able to understand and express in his work this calmness that you found a home in, in your translation work. I think you're right. There's a temptation in us and our very modern minds to romanticize this and to be like, oh, look, because he didn't want to cook, but he chose to cook and he, he remained faithful to the cooking. We need to unpack that and go to the space of, come on, cooks, <laughs> cook for me. <laughs> but no, this is not enforcing anyone or oppressing anyone, but it's inviting all of us to recognize that the divine and the sacred is part of all things, right? So I'm just curious because of the suffering that you've named in your own life and the suffering in, in his life and the journeys that you both have. Can you imagine a conversation between you and Brother Lawrence about surrender and sacredness? And what would the two of you talk about? That is, I, I just have to say, that is a profound question. That is, I've never been asked that question in any shape or form. Although I have imagined many conversations between me and Brother Lawrence because I feel like you do have a conversation yeah, yeah. with someone when you translate. So one of the things I would say is that he reminds me, I think we would actually feel like there are some religious persons whom I've met in real life today who stand in for Brother Lawrence. So like I met this monk, Tom Francis, in the Conyers Monastery in Georgia. And we had lunch one day. I don't know how I got lucky enough, but we had lunch. And he said to me, you know, Carm, just to throw, it's always the throwaway, the ordinary throwaway comments. He said over salad, he said, God is really our friend, he said. And that's a, he said, that's what I think is missing. And he wasn't a wise, he wasn't like, listen to me, I'm wise. It was just we were having lunch. We were just having lunch. He was in his robes, which I always find really comforting, the robes and everything, because I grew up with suits, like people in suits. Oh. And in church, you know? So like the robes are like kind of feminine. And so anyway, all I remember, he's in this robe yeah. and he's very down to earth. And he's like, yeah, that's, and he was including me. This is how life works. This was before even, or maybe right after I translated the cloud and published that. He was including me as one of those who knows God is friend. And I was listening to him going, He's many people don't really know God as friend. 
And I was like, whoa, this is a word. (laughs) This is a word for me. Because I think on some level, I did know God as friend, but I think I'd gotten away from that. And so one of the things Brother Lawrence talks about is in his letters in different places, he says, you know, why would you want to leave God alone? He said, if you had a friend visiting, you wouldn't leave them and go off and do something else and be distracted. You would be with them having a conversation like we're having a conversation, Julie. Like I'm so convinced that conversation is one of the paths forward, right? And he says, you wouldn't leave. If your friend came to visit you, you wouldn't leave your friend. You would be there, you know, eating lettuce together or drinking tea together or having a conversation. He says, so why would you leave God alone? So for me, you're very right about it's not transactional. It's not I'm going to get a badge. It's not, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be able to say I contemplated so many hours and look at me. It's not at all to do with transaction or any small ego type of thing. Yeah. Because he, because Brother Lawrence says throughout, I think really if we were having a conversation, what we'd probably do is go for a walk and not talk much. I mean, honestly, I picture that I could show him the snowy egrets in the marsh. I don't really picture anymore so much talking. It's more communing. I don't know if that makes sense. But he often says things like, notice how God is a friend who's always with you. And you can always return to God and to this conversation. So one of the things that he, that Brother Lawrence has, I might thank him. Actually, I might thank him for some things. And one of the things I would thank him for is how he says, like if you forget, because you do forget practicing the presence sometimes. And then when you return, it's not like God goes, well, where were you? (laughs) Why weren't you there in church on Wednesday night? It's nothing like, where were you? Why weren't you there? No, it's more like, that was a fun journey. I'm glad we went along and did that together, Julia. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly, no, it's exactly like that. And it's like, you're back. (laughs) For me, it's like, you're back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great you're back. Yeah, yeah. It's like the way the kindest people in our lives are. It's we're so glad you're back. And so I would thank him for helping me to see that. The other thing I think I would thank him for is how he emphasizes that this is truly a sometimes raw conversation because he says you would be surprised sometimes what happens in these many dialogues that a person has with God in the practice of the presence. He says you'd be surprised what people, what we talk about. And I think what that means, because he also says you express gratitude. Like sometimes it's just like, thank you. You can express, I need your help. Like for me, it's before I open my email at work, I get this intense, stressful feeling (laughs) and I love my job. Okay. But there's just this feeling of responsibility of, am I doing it right? That just stress. And I'll say a little prayer of like, here I am with the email. It's my email practice time. (laughs) And so sometimes my prayers are just help, but he also, and sometimes they're just, thank you. Like, thank you. I have a job and I can open email. Thank you. I have students and I can answer emails. But he also says, sometimes you'd be surprised in the sense of, I think it is for me. I don't think some of my conversations with God would be printable. Do you understand? Like, it's like, what is going on here? in whatever language might come up in my heart at the time. Yeah. And I think Brother Lawrence is saying, God is listening mm-hmm. but to whatever to whatever it is. And I think we have this notion that sometimes it would, should just be, thank you for creation. And yes, it is that sometimes. And thank you for my help. Thank you, as Julianne says, 
that we can go to the bathroom, right? We have this body that God has enabled us to live in. Thank you for the sacredness of the body. But it's also being human is, is hard. And sometimes for me, it's, why is it this way? Yeah. I bring my, I have so many, how Rilke says, live your questions. Well, I have many questions. Why is it this? And sometimes it's even frustration with myself. You know, it might be, thank you for helping me grow in self-compassion. And why am I like this? You know, at other times, I would, I, I would really with Brother Lawrence, I think if we had a conversation, I would also be asking him, how can I support the women in Iran and the others in Iran? And so I have a friend who is Iranian, who, who lives in the U.S. So I can't talk to Brother Lawrence. So I email my friend, how can I support the women? And so I, I think the conversation I would have with Brother Lawrence would be the kind of conversation that would be everyday stuff that comes up in our very complex, hurting world and that I can have with other friends right now, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think I would want to thank him for finding his way through his trauma and his disability and showing us that God is love, that returning to love while I'm washing the dishes is as important as talking with the amazing sister Julia Walsh on a podcast. You know what I'm saying? That that everything has its value in love and that love really is about relationship. Because I think Brother Lawrence was very Trinitarian, very lived Trinitarian, and that's relationship. So I think we can learn a lot from him about being embodied in our walk with a Trinity the Trinity in the Christian tradition that is all about relationship that respects others' uniqueness and difference. One thing I think he would be all about. Yeah. Yeah. I thank you so much. I am fascinated with how, you know, what I was almost expecting you to like share some really life-changing wisdom. Because that's what I, you know, always am hungry for. And when I asked about what would you and Brother Lawrence talk about with the sacredness and the surrender, and you just went to the ordinariness of, well, I'd ask him for guidance and I'd tell him thank you and I'd show him the birds. (laughs) Which, and ultimately you landed with love and relationship and Trinity. So, and so isn't that the joy and the messiness of living the contemplative life and yeah. the gospel. Um, and I think what I appreciate so much that I hope we all can hear is is how when it comes to the sacredness of the ordinary and to the sacredness of that, what, I mean, right, this is what Brother Lawrence talks about with the practice of the presence. Like, it's all about God is alive in all of this, so honor it, right? So that is helping us to stay more grounded and alive and awake. and. Yes, here we are having this conversation. Yes, I need to wash dishes later too. Okay, so God is in all of these things. So how do we show up with to each of these things with a spirit of surrender and acknowledging like we're bowing before the divine? Yeah, this dishwasher water is grace, but God is here, <laughs> right? Yes, the suffering is this is really hard that I carry today, and my concern for the people that are suffering in places like our yeah. and in the prisons, like this is real. But 
God is in this and I can be in conversation and communion with Christ. That's a, I'm glad you brought up that further because I totally agree. That's, and you say it so well, Julia. And I'd like to add two small things. One of the things Brother Lawrence did to surrender was that he fed his soul and it was fed to him. Yeah. Teresa of Avila and yeah. John of the Cross. So he heard those in the refectory, right? Right. He also did other reading. He loved the gospel. We read about that. The other thing, and I think contemplation, in addition to how you emphasize that it is every day and everyone, yes. because the world matter is sacred. People are sacred. Everything is sacred. The other thing is that one of my favorite teachers is Reverend Dr. Barbara A. Holmes, and she talks about how contemplation is community. And Brother Lawrence was in community, and he got the strength to surrender through community. I love Barbara Holmes' poem about unspeakable joy that talks about drum talk and dancing together and being in conversation, and that is part of contemplation. So I think one of the things that can make a person's heart beat stressfully is thinking, it's up to me. I got to, how can I help the world? When I feel overwhelmed by that, I reach out to people and say, like to my friend who is from Iran, and I said to her, what can I do? What I read on social media, this and that. And she says back to me, I myself am asking, what can I do in the U.S.? But, you know, and so it complexifies, or as we were talking about earlier, messifies things. And she even said to me, you can continue to make space in your classrooms to discuss these things. One thing you can do. So I just think we can remember how complex this whole thing is, that contemplation is not a sole person doing it alone, that while we're washing dishes, we're aware that people are washing dishes around the world in different situations, that we're all in this together, and that we also have ancestors who tried to do this. Yeah. And so we're not alone. I think that really helps me, that it's not all on me. So I love the fact that Desmond Tutu is one of my favorites and the concept of Ubuntu, that I am you, you are me, we are each other. And I think that is something profound to try to live into, but not something that anyone has accomplished. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an ongoing organic thing, but it gives me hope and meaning. Yeah. And that, that is worth the whole thing. And it keeps me humble too, because I think the surrender thing, I think we all, well, at least I know, I secretly wish I could do it once and for all and be done with it. You know, <laughs> like I surrender all is a... Is a you know, I Surrender All is a hymn I grew up with, um, but what they don't tell you is the fine print is keep doing it every microsecond <laughs> in some different form. And I'm just so thankful to meet friends along the way who help me see that this is a path we can walk together. You know how Ram Das says, yeah. we're all just walking each other home. Yeah. And I think that's important to remember. So thank you for making this space to talk about such things because it really does make my heart feel full and joyful and not alone and accompanied. So I really appreciate how you do this with so many. Yeah, thanks for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Is there any last thing you want to say about the messiness of contemplation and translation and living the spiritual life? 
I would just say that it is messy because life is messy. Sharon Salzberg says, you know, some things just hurt. And I think one of the things I've learned through contemplation is to feel the emotion. I mean, also through therapy, but to feel the emotion and whatever the emotion is, to feel it and to not identify with it necessarily, but to feel it and to know that love, I really am love. And so just the fact that these people experience these things helps me to see that is part of the human condition. And so I would just say the messiness is good. It is what it is, right? So it's good. <laughs> right. Oh, how can our listeners follow your work and learn more about your book? One of the things I've tried to do lately is to be more active on social media. My friend Mirabai Stark calls it the holy land of social media. So I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to look into and contribute to that. She says that unironically as she does everything. And my husband helped me to make many years ago a website for when I was teaching in Korea so students could read the stuff. It's www.carmenbutcher.com because I thought Acevedo would be just too much for people to know how to spell. And then I have a YouTube channel, which is like Carmen Acevedo Presence. And I post some things from the book and such. And then I have a link tree that is also Carmen Acevedo Butcher that has some of the podcasts. Like, And I would just love for people to visit it because I'm trying to contribute to the larger dialogue and I'm learning as I go how to. So thank you for asking, Julia. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on Messy Jesus, Ms. Carmen. Thank you so much. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And if you'd like to help us continue our work, we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.